Good morning, church family. Um, gosh, what a good morning it's been. I, uh, we, I had a mentor that, that told uh, Chris and Ryan and I one time that, that dry-eyed orthodoxy is, is poison, <laughs> right? And today has been anything but dry-eyed. Riley, thank you for being faithful. I don't know where you're at, but there you are. <laughs> thank you for being faithful and sharing your story. And we're, we stand with you, and we're proud of you. Um, if you got your copy of God's Word, turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 14, or excuse me, Romans chapter 15. Last week we finished Romans 14 as we looked at God's call and desire for us as a people of God to be unified. Now, unity is something that, that it's one of those things that's easy to spot. It's easy to see but it is actually only supernatural in occurrence. It is only something that can be achieved by a group of people that are following Jesus together and closely and choose to let the lesser things be the lesser things and choose to emphasize the important things together. And what we find today is this text that that. That Paul is pointing to us, to Jesus, to the example and to the purpose and to the power of Jesus. And we're going to find this in Romans 15, 1 through 7. But before we get there, I want, I want to cast this picture for you. There's a vision uh, that, that John has on the island of Patmos as he's writing the book of Revelation. And it inspires him. In, Ro in Revelation chapter 5, there's this, this vision of a thousand, thousands upon thousands of angels. And he's caught up and begins to see both creatures in earth or on earth, under the earth, and, and in heaven chanting and singing and saying this from Revelation 5.13. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Imagine how overwhelming it would be to be in a place where thousands upon thousands upon thousands be chanting this one thing, glory to God in the highest. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. It's, it's an amazing, overwhelming picture that, that gives goosebumps. The only thing that in my mind that I can begin to process it and connect it to in my own experience is, is being in Neyland Stadium on a college football Saturday, right? When people are singing Rocky Top in unison at the, the top of their, their lungs, it's almost a spiritual experience. And, and your favorite team, you may have been there, and it's one of those times where you can just kind of feel the goosebumps because all of the thousands and thousands of people are singing or chanting this one thing in unison. And it's as if all the individual voices, including your own, kind of meld into one large voice. What, what Paul is, is going to show and, and kind of push us to today is that the picture and purpose of unity is that we as the church would glorify God in such a way that we as members of this church, all personal in relationship with Jesus, 
are coming together for one purpose, and that is to glorify God, and that each of our personalities and each of our preferences meld together supernaturally by the Holy Spirit and come together and shout his praises to the nations and to God himself that he is worthy and glorious. That's the picture of the book of Revelation, and we are part of that cry We will sing, worthy is Jesus for all of eternity. And so we have our picture of what we will become in Revelation 5. But by God's grace, how do we get there? How do we achieve what he has for us? That's what Paul is showing us here. That if we declare God's glory then, how can we declare God's glory now? And he's going to simply say this, that we follow Jesus that we look to the example, power, and purpose of Jesus. Look with me at Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And as always, church, when you get there, say a word. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And this is, this is what Paul is kind of continuing to push. He continues to press unity because unity, again, it can only be achieved through supernatural purposes and power of the Spirit, through following the example of Jesus. And so what Paul wants for us to catch this morning is this, that God-desired unity is forged. It's forged. It's something that is melded together by the heat of the Holy Spirit. God-desired unity is forged by living in the example, power, and uh, purpose of Jesus. Today is an opportunity, as it is each and every time we hear the word of God, is to respond and say, Jesus, not my will, not the way that I feel natural, but your will, your way be done. It's an opportunity to trust Jesus and say that his way is better and higher than our own. And our own natural reaction is to prefer our stuff, to be self-centered, to be selfish, But we must choose to live this way if we are going to accomplish the God-desired unity that that we can have. And that's the reason in each of the three points I have today, I have the word can in there. Is that this is not a given. This is not a given at all. In fact, in pretty much each of the books that Paul writes, he has to hit on unity. Why? Because it's hard. 
It requires each and every one of us to submit to God, to be following Jesus together, and to set aside our preferences for the betterment of one another. We can do this with the power of the Holy Spirit, but it is not a given that we will do this. But there's a great picture of what happens if we choose to do this. So the first point that we see in verses 1 through 3 is we see the example of Christ. We see the example of Christ that like Jesus, we can sacrificially seek others' good over our own. We can sacrificially, through the Spirit's power, seek others' good over our own. Look with me again at verses 1 through 3. Paul says it like this, that we who are strong, again he's going back to the strong and weak categories that he had throughout chapter 14, meaning strong the ones that feel free to participate in the gray areas or conscience matters of the faith, and weak being those who feel restricted and not willing or able in good conscience to participate in such things. So he puts this obligation on the strong. He says, we who are strong have an obligation. It's a duty. It's a task to be taken up to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself as it is written. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus is our example for how we do this. As followers of Jesus, we must look to Jesus and how he treated others. And the first thing that Paul says is that we love and seek others good by bearing with one another. Right, that's the first thing, that we, the strong in particular, have an obligation or a duty to bear with them. We seek their good by bearing with them. Now, what does that mean? He says here the, the failings, he, he mentions a couple of words. He says bear, he says failings, and, and weak. The failings is, is another word for infirmities or doubts, that the weak believer in each of these matters has, has an infirmity or a malnourishment or a doubt that doesn't allow for them to participate. Paul had just said that if you believe that something is wrong, that's a gray area of the faith, then it is wrong for you to participate. Whether scripture explicitly says it or not, if your conscience tells you, then it's wrong. And so then he says that the strong must bear with them. And so how do we, do, like, how do we begin to, to do this? It focuses on what the free believer can do, not what the restricted believer should do. He says strong believer, bear with them. Bear with them is another word to lift or to carry. A good mental picture is, if you remember Jesus on the way to the cross, carrying his cross, there's someone that helps him carry the cross, right? Simon of Cyrene, the man begins to help carry Jesus' cross for him. This is a picture, a mental picture of what it means for us to bear with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It means to take up, to lift, or to carry their burdens with them on the way, on their journey with Jesus, right? So it doesn't mean condemn them. It doesn't mean leave them as they are. But bearing with them as believers means to take up their burdens and to walk with them through them. It's, it's, it's an idea, if you will, that 
if, if you kind of picture it this way, there's, if you're a coach, a basketball coach, bearing with a kid who's playing basketball that's seven years old is not expecting them to be as good as a 15 or 17-year-old, right? It's not to treat them as if they were 15 or 17, to expect them to be able to have all of the skills as a 15 or 17-year-old, but rather it's to bear with them, teach them, encourage them, build them up, meet them where they are, and walk with them as they grow. That's the obligation of a strong believer, where to lift or to carry with them. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, something pretty much exactly the same as what he says here. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Which is what, he says, with all humility. This, this is the, the spirit in which we must do this. With humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. With humility, gentleness, and patience, we bear with one another. Consider how many times we see in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus bearing with the disciples and bearing with us. Now, if we were Jesus in those times, how many times when you read the, the, the Gospels, do you just kind of put your hands over your face when, when you see Peter doing something dumb or saying something he shouldn't do or, or them arguing, as we talked about last week, James and John arguing about who's the greatest. There's so many times when you look at it, you're just like, these guys don't get it. And Jesus knew that, but he, he bore with them. Think about Jesus carrying Peter, even though Peter just had rebuked him, saying, get behind me, Satan. Think about when the disciples were scared in the boat as the storm raged around them. Jesus actually bore with them, walked with them through that. He didn't just condemn them. Think and consider about um, when the disciples wanted to send the crowds away rather than feed them. What did Jesus do? He taught them. He bore with them. He walked with them. And even when they deserted Jesus, what did Jesus do? He walked with them. He called them back. He went back in his resurrection and talked to each of them and called them to himself. You and I, beloved, we bear with one another in the example of Jesus because that is exactly what Jesus does with us. He walks with us. He teaches us. He loves with, with humility and gentleness and patience. We also do this by pleasing them. Now, this is, is a strange way Paul kind of says this, but in verse 2 he says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. So we bear with them, but we also please them. Now, how do we do that? Instead of choosing to exercise our own freedom and liberty, there are times in which it is better in which we choose to exercise restraint for our brothers and sisters in Christ, to please them. Now notice, I don't believe that this is a becoming a, us becoming a bunch of people pleasers. Because it doesn't put in contrast that we are to please them instead of 
or rather than pleasing God. Rather, it says, please them for his good. Meaning we are to appease and please people up to the point that it is for their good. How many of you have children but have had to restrict the amount of chocolate that you give to your kid? Right. In and of themselves, they are perfectly incapable of knowing how much chocolate they should eat, right? Now, if you just take the spirit of this text and and you just say, please them, then the spirit of this text would be to to give them whatever they want, whenever they want. Be at the legalist swims, do whatever they want you to do, essentially. That means we would be twisted and turned and and it would be as, uh, the church would be a miserable experience. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says to please them, temporarily restrain yourself. Why? For his good. Meaning you choose to restrain yourself so long that it is for his good. That it would be good for them. Again, let's look at the life of Jesus. How did Jesus do this? Jesus left his perfect glory. This is what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He left his perfect glory for our sake. It says this, For you know... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In the example of Jesus, there are times that it is better for us to please our brother and sister, forsake our right for his or her betterment. Now, when do we do this this is something that, that you have to be following Jesus on. I can't just stand up here and say, this is when you, you kind of cut bait. This is something that the Spirit will prompt you, knowing what this text says, that you are looking out and seeking the good of your neighbor, the good of your brother and sister in Christ, over even your own. There's a, a great quote that, that i that I found that from Thomas Constable, it says this, in him, meaning in Jesus, we can see the difference between a people pleaser and a people lover. Sacrificing his own preferences for the welfare of others did not make him acceptable to everyone, but it did make him acceptable to his father. I think that's, that's the difference. We are pleasing others for their good as long as it pleases the Father to do so. And that ought to be, in the example of Christ, what we do. So we bear with them. We please them. And then the final thing that he says is that we build them up. At the end of verse 2, he says that, that we actually build them up. Not only do we bear with them, not only do with in humility and gentleness and patience do we bear with one another through our preferences, but it says we also edify or build each other up. It's not enough for you just, if you're the weaker brother in this instance, to just remain status quo, like, well, they'll just keep doing whatever I want because I'm the weaker brother. No, Paul gives you the responsibility to be growing and to be built up, Right? It says that we are to build each other up. It's an, it, he encourages us to be growing. Now, how do we do this? 
Remember and look back at the example of Jesus, how Jesus taught. It wasn't that Jesus just let all of these things happen, but think back to one that I mentioned, I believe, last week. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus and, and some of his disciples come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And they encounter these disciples that have no idea what they're doing, trying to cast out this demon from uh, this poor child. And the father runs to Jesus, right? And, and he's like, these goobers don't know what they're doing, and they cannot cast out this demon. Will you help me? And Jesus calls him to faith and even says, I believe that you can do it. Help my unbelief. But what does Jesus do? In the, in the middle of that crowd, Jesus didn't rebuke them. But what did he do? He then and then after, he went and taught them. Right? He encouraged them. In the moment, he didn't embarrass them. But rather, he chose to walk with them, to teach them. We see in different times, Jesus, in John 17, we see Jesus praying for his disciples. How do we build people up? We encourage them, we teach them, and then we pray for them. That's the example of, of Jesus. But God must be doing the work in us for us to do this. Again, unity is something that's only achieved supernaturally. So this is the example of, of Jesus Christ. Now we find the power. How do we do this? How do we have the power to do this? We see the power of Christ in verses 4 and 5. Look with me again at verses 4 and 5. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance, through the encouragement of what? Of the scriptures, we might have hope. And notice the source here in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement. So he says that we receive endurance and encouragement from the scriptures, but the source of this hope that we receive, the hope, the endurance and encouragement we grant is of God. He grants us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. The power of Christ is this, that like Jesus, we can find endurance and encouragement through the scriptures and our relationship with God the Father. Through the scriptures and our relationship with God the Father. Our ability to continue to do good, to serve one another, to put our own preferences aside for the betterment of another only comes when we are encouraged and enabled to do so in our relationship with God and our encouragement through the scriptures. That's it. It's not a magical secret or anything like that, but until we choose to, to dive deep into the scriptures and to, as Jesus did, be alone with the Father and commune with him, we will not have the power to be able to do this, to endure. Notice the two words. It says endurance, meaning this is a difficult task ahead of us. That there are going to be some times when you've got it like a, like a fighter. You've got to take some body blows. That's what, that's what the psalm says. Psalm 69. Look with me at the end of verse 3. In the example of Jesus, uh, Paul quotes Psalm 69. And says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This was talking about King David 
who had chosen to side with God and chosen to side with staying in the temple or with the temple, even against what the enemies wanted him to do. And so David was taking some persecution, taking some body blows. And then Paul attributes this or connects this to what Jesus did from his disciples and from essentially everyone else endured great pain, great suffering. That's the reason he uses the word endure. We, sometimes we must endure with one another. And so he says that, that through the scriptures, that the scriptures, even the Old Testament, was written for your good and for your encouragement. The Old Testament scriptures, while yes, were written to and for Israel in God's plan, they were written for your good and for your encouragement. Not only that, but then he says that we see it through the scriptures and we are encouraged through the scriptures, but then we receive power in communion with our Father as we have a relationship with God himself. The, this quote, I think, is really important in, in that it, it kind of shows the necessity of being able to endure. Douglas Moo said it this way, Like Jesus, the strong in Rome should be willing to serve in love even those who are being nasty to them. Even those who are being nasty to them. And that's what we see at the end of verse 3. That you and I are able to continue to sacrifice and love even when we're taking body blows and doing what is right because we are given hope through the scriptures that God is a God of perseverance. That God is the one who will hold you fast even in the midst of that. Our hope for the future reminds us that the sacrifice now with our brothers and sisters is worth it. So Paul reveals that we are to encourage, build each other up. He reveals the power that we receive through the, through the Spirit and through the Scriptures. And then finally we see the purpose of Christ. What's this all about? Why are we doing what we're doing? And he says, like Jesus, you and I can live. We can live as a church for the glory of God. The, under the example of Jesus, look with me at verse 6 and 7. That together, this is in accord with Christ Jesus, that together, this is something we all must do, we must choose to participate, that you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We can live with one voice. Our unity glorifies God. Psalm 133 kind of talks about it this way. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This, and this is, this is just talking even about the tribes of Israel. It is like the precious oil on the head, meaning it is an anointing. Running down on the beard, on the beard of, of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This blessing is not just something for us, but it's for God's glory and it is for the good of the church. 
Riley talked about the fact that there were people in this church that rallied around and walked with you and, and patiently loved you and prayed for you. And part of God's way of drawing us in is through that unified purpose. It is attractive to the world. It's something we all long for. But it is something that is only supernatural. If there is discord, Paul says, that we will sound like something else. It will not be one voice and it will not be for God's glory. Oftentimes, if I'm sick or something like that, I sound like a, a waitress at the Waffle House that's been smoking seven packs a day. It's like, how you doing, sweetheart? <laughs> right? When we do that, we don't resound with one voice God's glory. We don't sound like what God intended us to sound like. But when we come together in unity, church, when we sing together, when we study together, when we serve together, it glorifies God and God's glory when it goes out amongst the world, draws people to himself. And that's our purpose. As we close, I want you to hear this video of Ukrainians singing in the subway uh, a hymn, a Ukrainian hymn, that I think kind of shows this unity and purpose for the glory of God that is powerful with one voice. Church, in good times and in bad, it is our call to glorify God with one voice. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you unify us supernaturally. Holy Spirit, will you work amongst us and help us to follow Jesus and his example? Help us to sacrifice for one another to meet the need when we're called to meet the need and able to meet the need. May we seek our brothers and sisters good. May we declare with one voice your glory, that you are worthy. May it not be a bunch of individuals, but may we as one group, one people, one body, declare that you are worthy, that you are king, that you are Lord. May we submit to that. May we follow that. And may you draw people to yourself through it, Lord Jesus. I know there are people that are hurting and broken. Would you use it to bring them to yourself? Jesus, we thank you that you died on the cross for us. That you loved us enough to forsake your wealth for a, a, in exchange for our poverty. And yet through that, through our trust and belief in your death and resurrection, we are now made rich. And so we praise you for that. So may we sing with one voice as we close. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.